This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. everyone, this is the UCSF Breast Surgery team back for our final BTK episode. Having the BTK platform over the past two years as a way of sharing knowledge about the rapidly evolving field of breast surgical oncology has been an amazing experience, and I'd like to thank the BTK creators for giving us this opportunity. I'd also like to thank my attendings, Dr. Mukhtar and Dr. Alvarado, for being excited about becoming BTK contributors and for sitting down with me every four months to put these shows together. As a reminder, my name is Alexa Glenser, and I'm currently one of the general surgery chief residents at UCSF, uh, but will be going to breast surgery fellowship at MD Anderson this summer. Dr. Mukhtar is an associate professor of breast and general surgery at UCSF, as well as one of the general surgery residency associate program directors. Dr. Alvarado is a professor of breast and melanoma surgery at UCSF and the breast surgical oncology fellowship program director at UCSF. Today, we will be discussing the diagnosis and management of hereditary breast cancer. It was not long ago that our understanding of hereditary breast cancer was limited to BRCA or BRCA mutations, but there are now more pathogenic genes to be aware of and significant progression in the medical, surgical, and surveillance strategies used to manage these conditions. Let's go ahead and get started. We'll begin by some basic definitions so that we can orient ourselves and everyone listening. Um, so when we talk about a pathog- excuse me, when we talk about a pathogenic variant, Dr. Mukhtar, what are we talking about, and how is that different from a variant of uncertain significance? Great, thanks so much, Alexa. It is nice to be here for our final uh, breast surgery episode for BTK. So to answer your questions, uh, pathogenic variant is the preferred term for what we used to call a genetic mutation. So a pathogenic variant would be a sequence of a particular gene that renders that gene um, either unreadable or um, leads to a non-functional protein. And if you have such a mutation or variant in a gene that is associated with breast cancer, a person who has that uh, germline sequence can have elevated risk for breast cancer. Um, This is different than a variant of uncertain significance where with a variant of uncertain significance or a VUS, the alteration in the gene that is present is not necessarily uh, known to be associated with a higher chance of getting cancer. Um, It could be that the person has a variant of a gene that is just less common in the general population that has been tested. And what happens with variants of uncertain significance is that as more genetic testing data is accumulated over time, these variants will be reclassified and the vast majority of variants of uncertain significance will ultimately be found to not be associated with cancer and so will be recategorized as normal um, variations in a particular gene. A small number of them 
will be reclassified as pathogenic variants, again, mutations. And for that reason, people who had variants of uncertain significance um, should not be um, recommended to make medical decisions based on the presence of those variants, but certainly should be recommended to have routine follow-up with genetic counselors so that over the coming years, they can make sure that their variant has not been reclassified as a pathogenic one. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so I, you know, I've certainly met plenty of patients come to me with these variants of uncertain significance, convinced that it's the same thing as pathogenic variants. And so to your point, I think it's really important to establish the difference and to make it clear that clinical decisions are currently not being made based upon a variant of uncertain significance. Um, in addition to these definitions, there are a variety of genetic testing uh, modalities available. Dr. Alvarado, what types of genetic testing do you typically use in your practice? Yes, uh, great to be back. And again, thanks so much for the last couple of years. It's been wonderful working with both of you. So in the genetic testing kind of arena, when we see patients, most of the time we're either referring patients to have their testing done with a panel test, or we may refer them to see the genetic counselor who may then order the panel testing. Uh, when we say panel testing, um, uh, a panel of genes can be eight genes, uh, 16 genes, 30 genes, 80 genes, 250 genes. So um, there are a lot of different genes that are being tested now for uh, an array of different diseases and cancers. But specifically in the breast cancer world, you know, it's usually a smaller panel for the immediate information that might be beneficial when we're talking to women about what type of surgery, surgery they might need. So um, the great news is that the cost of these uh, gene panels has come down dramatically since I've started practice. Uh, 15 years ago, there were basically one uh, uh, company that would run this test for four to $5,000. Now there are numerous companies that do testing and you may have a panel of 64 genes for $250. So I think that's really changed um, a lot of uh, how we do things and referring patient for, for testing. So typically a panel test, um, kind of an early, early uh, panel that might incorporate some of the uh, most important genes for um, breast cancer would be where we would start when we see patients and if we think that uh, they should be tested. Okay, got it. And when do you typically consider referring your patients for genetic testing? Yeah, so again, you know, there are national guidelines put out by uh, the NCCN. There are recommendations from the American Society for Breast Surgeons. And just like everything we do, a lot of different societies have different recommendations and guidelines. Um, the American Society for Breast Surgeons uh, typically recommends that all patients with a new diagnosis of cancer, uh, new diagnosis of breast cancer should be tested. And that's come about with some interesting information that's been published in the last five or six years. But within the NCCN guidelines, it's a little bit more stringent in terms of patient age. Uh, we also look at the biology of the breast cancer, whether it's the estrogen positive or the so-called triple negative. And then, of course, looking at family history is usually an, a very important aspect. So, you know, different family members that may have positive breast cancer or other cancers that might be related to different 
genetic mutations. So uh, we kind of look at all those things together and, and uh, figure out whether or not we think those patients should be recommended um, for a panel of, of testing. And we can either start that by having their blood drawn and get that cooking while we'll get them set up with the genetic counselor. Or if we're lucky enough to have the genetic counselor here, we'll have them see them uh, the same day. You know, to add to that, um, as Dr. Alvarado said, part of the reason that the American Society for Breast Surgeons recommends testing all patients with a diagnosis of breast cancer is if you do find a genetic mutation, that definitely has implications for um, the kind of monitoring that they're going to get after they have surgery, if you're going to be getting high-risk screening or, excuse me, surveillance with MRIs, for example, after breast conservation. They could impact the type of surgery that they want to have. Um, it could also impact the type of therapy that they get um, if they have a BRCA mutation. So this could make them eligible for certain systemic therapies that I think we might be talking about a little bit later. Um, so there is definitely a lot of ways that this could impact the patient's management. Um, having said that, if you are going to follow the NCCN guidelines where you're going to be looking at specific criteria for testing and not necessarily testing all patients, um, I, I wanted to just point out kind of my, you know, favorite type of breast cancer, which is, I shouldn't say favorite, but the, the cancer that I'm most interested in, which is lobular breast cancer. So um, although lobular breast cancer is not triple negative, we, we know that triple negative cancer has a strong association with BRCA1 mutations. Lobular breast cancers are, are usually strongly ER positive, but for a patient who has a lobular breast cancer, you always want to ask about any family history of gastric cancer, since both of these cancers share a defect in e-cadherin. So lobular breast cancer grows in a diffuse pattern because it lacks e-cadherin, and diffuse gastric cancer also grows in a diffuse pat pattern because it lacks e-cadherin. And the gene for e-cadherin is uh, CDH1, and there is a hereditary uh, cancer syndrome called hereditary diffuse gastric cancer syndrome. Um, it's quite rare, but if you see that combination of lobular breast cancer and stomach cancer in the family, that's definitely something that should come to your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's certainly not something that I had been aware of before preparing for this particular podcast. Um, so in addition to the BRCA mutations and CDH1, what are the other you know, high penetrance breast cancer susceptibility genes that you know our viewers or our listeners should be aware of yeah there there's um, some some standard ones that we think about uh, besides the kind of classic BRCA1 BRCA2 and and as dr. Mukhtar Messer mentioned the uh, CDH1 but there is the palp B2 gene mutation uh, there's also the check 2 uh, mutation and then of course, um, the P53 and uh, P10 as well. So uh, those are the ones that we're mostly looking at uh, when, we're, when we're talking about risk for future breast cancer. Um, and those are the ones that we would be thinking about when we start asking questions about family history um, as well as even uh, ancestry, for example. So Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry um, with the breast cancer history may be very important in thinking about uh, BRCA mutations. Um, and then really thinking about the family history. And again, it, it's it's interesting sometimes when you ask patients, say, oh, well, you know, is there any family history of breast cancer? And your patient says, oh, yeah, my my aunt, you know, she had breast cancer when she was 55. And you say, oh, 
that your mom's sister or your dad's sister, oh no, that's my mom's uh, my my mom's brother's wife. Like, okay, well, that's not really an, that is a close relative, but that doesn't really fit into what we would consider kind of a, what we say like a close blood relative. So again, when you have close blood relatives with breast cancer diagnosed under the age of 50 or a male breast cancer in the family or even a, a patient with male breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, or even uh, metastatic prostate cancer, these are things that um, when there really truly are a close blood relative, you might uh, think about um, sending them to the genetic counselor or go ahead and um, getting them tested yourself. Okay. Got it. That's very helpful. And that certainly highlights some things that I hadn't previously thought of when risk stratifying patients for breast cancer. We know that there's certainly a link between pancreatic and breast cancer, obviously with ovarian cancer and breast cancer, underlying BRCA mutations. Um, metastatic prostate cancer um, is also um, something that you should be aware of. Okay. Um, so, you know, a, a more global question that I have for each of you is, whether we're at the point where identification of a specific pathogenic gene variant um, impacts medical treatment recommendations. Are there different medical therapies that we would offer for a patient with a specific underlying breast cancer susceptibility uh, mutation? Or is it the standard approach and what we gain from understanding the underlying um, hereditary breast cancer is simply for purposes of screening close family members. Dr. Mukhtar, I'll ask you that question. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think, of course, the there's a goal to develop therapies that are going to target a specific mutation that a cancer cell might have. Um, and the main one that I'm aware of that's really come into clinical practice is in the setting of using PARP inhibitors for tumors that have BRCA mutations, so BRCA mutations. So, um, you know, there's, there's two ways that a tumor could have a BRCA mutation. So one is if the person actually has a germline mutation or rather pathogenic variant in the BRCA gene, whether that's BRCA1 or 2, if they develop breast cancer, that mutation is also going to be present in those breast cancer cells. And that would make it a hereditary breast cancer. But it's also possible that a person who does not have a germline uh, variants in the BRCA gene might spontaneously develop a cancer where the cancer cell has gotten a somatic mutation in the BRCA gene. Regardless of how it got that mutation, a cancer cell that um, has a BRCA mutation has a problem with repairing double-stranded DNA breaks. So um, when the cell is not able to, to repair double-stranded DNA through the normal mechanism, it relies on this enzyme um, to to do single-stranded DNA repair. And if you then block that enzyme, now the cell has no way at all of repairing these DNA breaks. And uh, that leads to what's called synthetic lethality, so the cell will die. So a PARP inhibitor is stopping the cell from using its backup method for fixing DNA breaks. So when you, um, you want to know if someone has a BRCA-mutated cancer so that you can treat them with a PARP inhibitor which first was used in the metastatic setting and more recently has actually been approved in the adjuvant setting, meaning in the non-metastatic setting for patients that have BRCA mutated tumors. Okay. And when do you decide when to send BRCA testing on the tumor itself as opposed to, you know, germline genetic testing? We're talking about someone who does, is not known to have an underlying germline BRCA mutation, but you're thinking about sending the 
tumor cells for BRCA testing. When does that typically happen? Because I, I, I'm not aware of that being a standard assay that the pathologists do. Yeah, no, that's a, a good point. So it's it's typically not. Okay. Um, and I think in kind of standard adjuvant or even neoadjuvant setting, you you wouldn't send the tumor. But for patients that might have a recurrence or they're not responding to treatment, there are newer um, ways of testing the tumor. So, for example, at UCSF, we have an in-house uh, test called UCSF 500 where you can test the tumor to look at genetic changes within the tumor, uh, like Dr. Mukhtar said, not um, germline, but actually somatic looking at the tumor itself. And so uh, that for for strange behaving cancers, recurrences that aren't responding to therapy, um, maybe uh, certain recurrences that are now you're at third or fourth line therapy, that is a time when they might send it for either a commercial test of the tumor or if the university, for example, has an in-house test, they might do it at that time. But you're right. It's definitely, it is not used in kind of standard therapy in the somatic testing. Uh, but like the, Dr. Mukhtar mentioned, um, whether the tumor uh, got that mutation from either a somatic uh, mutation or germline, uh, for example, the PARP inhibitor would work. But, but that's kind of where we're at right now. Okay, great. Well, at this point, I think we should shift our focus from discussing the NCCN guidelines to discussing emerging data uh, based upon population-based multi-gene testing. Um, in 2021, the New England Journal published an article describing results from the Carriers Consortium or Cancer Risk Estimates Related to Susceptibility Consortium. Uh, Dr. Mukhtar, what is the Carriers Consortium and why is it important in understanding hereditary breast cancer? Yeah, so, you know, really our understanding of hereditary breast cancer comes from the populations that have been tested. And most of these populations are people who have breast cancer or have a very strong family history of breast cancer. And what people have found is that um, you know, we know that different genes and different um, pathogenic variants have different penetrants. So um, the meaning the presence of a particular mutation may have a lower or higher risk of actually leading to cancer in a person, depending on the context. So if someone has a pathogenic variant and they have a strong family history of breast cancer, their particular mutation is going to have higher penetrance. So their personal risk of getting breast cancer is going to be higher compared to someone with the same pathogenic variant who does not have family history of cancer. So, so within the same genes, there can be a variation in the penetrance or um, sort of seeing the, um, seeing the effect of having that particular mutation. And studies like the Carriers Consortium really can help us understand the denominator. So how many people are walking around with these pathogenic mutations um, and how many of those people will end up getting breast cancer, we don't really know if we're only testing people who already have breast cancer. So one of the strengths of this Carriers Consortium is they've put together um, several studies that are um, prospective studies where patients are without cancer and with cancer are being tested, having multi-gene panel testing. Um, for some of the studies, patients have family history of breast cancer, for some of the studies, patients have no family history, so this is more what's called population-based. And the results from studies like this really help us understand just how common 
these pathogenic variants are and what is the strength of the association between a particular gene variant and actually seeing the phenotype of cancer. And also, can we see what type of cancer people get based on the particular mutation that they have? And so in the paper that you talked about, which was published in the New England Journal, in that particular study, they were looking at the cohorts that were population-based testing. And one of the interesting findings is uh, when they looked for some of the common breast cancer-associated genes, they found that um, in the, the cases in the study, so the people who had breast cancer, the incidence of having mutations in those genes was about 5%. And that's actually lower than what we sort of classically say. So we usually say that hereditary breast cancer accounts for about 10% of all cases. So I think that this study really shows us that the more genetic testing you do, the more you're going to find that um, you're going to have people who have mutations and don't have breast cancer, or you're going to find a lower incidence of um, pathogenic mutations in people who otherwise would not have been tested, maybe because they didn't have family history that would have prompted testing in the era when there were uh, more strict criteria for who had access to testing. Um, the other sort of interesting finding from the carrier study is how common are these variants of uncertain significance that we talked about? Uh -huh. And um, and this is probably, you know, one of the downsides of doing genetic testing. So almost 20% of people, I think it was, you know, 18 or 19% of people had a variant of uncertain significance. So for some people, um, getting that result can be a source of anxiety, even though we tell people, you know, this is not something actionable. We should not change your medical treatment or management based on the presence of a variant of uncertain significance. Um, but I think that also highlights the importance of pretest counseling. So letting people know that if they're going to do genetic testing, there is a good chance, up to 20% chance, that we might find a variant that at some future date will probably be reclassified as a, a normal version of the gene. Um, but we're just still accumulating the data to be able to show that. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's really helpful. Um, you know, one of the takeaways that I read about in the study, um, when the authors get into the their discussion and interpretation of their results, they recommend risk stratification of women with breast cancer without a significant family history based upon tumor markers, um, you know, namely whether the tumor that they have is estrogen receptor positive uh, and or HER2 positive. Um, can you, Dr. Alvarado, can you tell me a little bit more about that um, and about how you'd consider using that, that insights from the study in your clinical practice? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where it's a bit of an amalgam of of different aspects of the patient. So it is true that the estrogen receptor, whether it's positive or negative, does kind of cue you into the question of should this patient be tested or not. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, based on kind of this data, NCCN guidelines, um, et cetera, you'd say, okay, well, you know, a 60-year-old woman with an estrogen-positive, progesterone-positive breast cancer with no family history is probably not really any reason to test her um, for a genetic mutation because the, the likelihood that she has a mutation is going to be so low. Um, but if that same patient had a triple-negative breast cancer, so estrogen receptor-negative breast cancer, progesterone-negative, uh, as well as HER2-negative, then you probably would send uh, testing because uh, there'd be a little bit higher chance that she may have um, something associated with her mutation or with a mutation status. So definitely think that these um, tumor markers, you know, estrogen receptor, HER2, um, whether it's triple negative, HER2 positive, estrogen positive, these do play a role. Um, but then again, having said that, you know, it's with the way that the American uh, uh the American Society for Breast Surgeons has been talking about testing everybody. Really, the question then is, well, is there any downside to testing all women? And so it used to be that it was expensive. Yeah. And there maybe not wasn't a lot of data to be utilized. And so now it's like, well, it's not that expensive. And even if the patient's insurance denies it, most of these companies have these programs where a patient might have a $100 out of pocket. So much less than it than it used to be. I think the the biggest negative is kind of like what Dr. Mukhtar was alluding to um, and this that you mentioned as well were these variants of uh, unknown significance, these VUSs. Mm -hmm. That's where we end up having a lot of discussion with our patients because sometimes they can't understand like, well, I have this mutation, but it's a VUS, but I have this mutation. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it it's never been shown to, you know, so I think that that is a little bit of uh, uh, of an issue, but you know when it comes to spending healthcare dollars, you know something like this is is kind of a drop in the bucket compared to some of the other stuff um, that we do for right. for different patients. So um, so I think it's 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 beneficial as Dr. Mukhtar showed us. Um, the data is very good, and that carrier study they've been able to use that data to look at all sorts of different information with regards to those patients. Okay, great, thank you. Now, I'd like to ask you each a few questions about your surgical management of patients with pathogenic mutations in one of these breast cancer susceptibility genes, both women who already have breast cancer as well as those who have an underlying mutation but do not currently have breast cancer. So what is the typical treatment recommendation for a woman with a known BRCA mutation or PALB2 mutation and a diagnosis of breast cancer? So, yeah, so these are these are interesting discussions we have with patients. Um, you know, the big question is, so let's start with the patient that that doesn't have a diagnosis of breast cancer. So for whatever reason, they were tested or like a patient of mine where um, they decided to get 23andMe for their whole family right. at Christmas time. And lo and behold, she had a BRCA mutation. Um, so... In those cases, it really comes down to 
how the patient feels about risk. And also these different genetic mutations have a wide range of future risk. So to one person, a 30% lifetime risk may not be that bad. Whereas to another person, that may be way too high and they want to do something about it. Um, for the BRCA gene, I think, you know, that's a pretty high risk, 60 to 80%, depending on BRCA2, BRCA1. You know, we talk about what the options are. I think the recommendation is they either do, at least our recommendations would do some type of more intense screening mm -hmm. or prophylactic surgery as prevention. Okay. Uh, you know, of course, I personally don't recommend you should have bilateral mastectomy. I think it's one of those, look, here's the information. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, because it's a big, a big discussion, right? Someone who's completely unaffected all of a sudden has a 60, 80% risk of breast cancer. Those are really tough discussions. So I think Dr. Mokhtar and I uh, here at, at UCSF, you know, we, we see our patients, we try to give them the, as much information as possible, talk about risk, what might happen if they got the breast cancer, what the treatments might be, what the screening is. Sometimes the screening itself is is miserable. Right. I mean, you know, every six months something and the anxiety of what are they going to find this time? Or I had a biopsy last time, it was negative. This time they saw something, they said it's probably benign, we'll follow up in six months. I mean, that can be a, a very, very horrible quality of life for some people. Yeah. So I think it's it's just it just depends on the patient. But um, once they've decided, then, uh, for example, if they are interested in prophylactic mastectomies, we talk to them about about prophylactic uh, bilateral mastectomy. Probably 95% of the time, it's the total skin-sparing mastectomy or kind of nipple-sparing mastectomy, but removing all of the, of the breast tissue um, with um, some type of reconstruction if they want that. Um, but of course, since they're not diagnosed, we, we don't do any um, nodal surgery. But that would be for someone who's uh, undiagnosed. Right. But I think, you know, Dr. Mukhtar, you know, with someone that's been diagnosed with breast cancer that ends up having uh, one of these genetic mutations, sometimes that, that's a whole different uh, situation, I guess, right? Right. Um, you know, I think that if, if someone has a diagnosis of breast cancer and it turns out that they have a pathogenic mutation, so it's a hereditary breast cancer, um, you know, first you're going to decide about systemic therapy like neoadjuvant therapy based on um, the stage of the tumor and the tumor biology. So if it's triple negative or HER2 positive, for example, you're probably going to be referring them to medical oncology to talk about systemic therapy prior to surgery. And um, you want to also keep in mind the importance of referring these patients to gynecology because patients with BRCA mutations in particular also have a very high risk of uh, future ovarian cancer. So they're going to need some sort of surveillance or possibly risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy, um, which could be done, you know, at the time of the breast surgery, potentially. The surgery itself for the breast cancer, the question always comes up, should you go ahead and do bilateral mastectomies since, um, you know, the patient potentially has a high risk of a second breast cancer? I think that it depends on which gene has the pathogenic variant because there's going to be a range. So for a BRCA mutation, you, you probably have a higher risk of getting a second breast cancer if you decide to do breast conserving surgery. And I think we have some data um, that Dr. Alvarado, you know, will share a little bit later about how those numbers uh, vary from gene to gene. Um, but I do think it's important to note that it is still 
possible to do breast conserving surgery. Not everyone wants to do bilateral mastectomies, even in the presence of a, a germline pathogenic variant. But if people do decide to do breast conserving surgery, the remaining tissue should be surveilled using, you know, what's called high-risk surveillance. So as Dr. Alvarado alluded to, that's typically going to be a breast MRI in addition to mammogram. And these are done alternating um, every six months. So there's some sort of breast imaging every six months. So, you know, some people don't want to do that kind of screening. Some people would rather do that kind of screening and avoid um, avoid going through a bilateral mastectomy with all of the downsides that come with that in regards to loss of sensation and, you know, the need to go through maybe more than one operation, particularly if reconstruction is going to be chosen. But I definitely think that, um, you know, the, the chance, knowing what is the chance of a second breast cancer after treating the first breast cancer, I think is really critical to making that decision about what type of surgery you're going you're gonna to pursue. So maybe Dr. Alfredo, you can share there's some recent data looking at that question specifically. Yeah, no, that that's you know spot on with regards to future risk of a second breast cancer. I mean, we have patients that, you know, in their 40s, for example, that have no genetic mutation, have no family history, and we talk to them about their biology and their future risk, and maybe it's a 20% chance of another breast cancer in the next 30 years, and that's too high for some patients. Right. So that's even for non-mutation carriers. So for mutation carriers, I mean, just the the thought of, or just the name mutation, I have a mutation in this, so that's scary as it, as it is. And I think as, as Dr. Muftar was alluding to, we used to kind of think of uh, PALP-B2, BRCA, ATM mutations as you've had your first cancer, and now you probably have a, a very high risk of a second breast cancer. So, right. you know, BRCA2 is, oh, maybe it's a 60% chance of another breast cancer. That's very high. Um, PALP-B2, you know, maybe it's a 25% risk, and maybe that's too high. But in this, in the carrier study, what they've done, now they've even, dri you know, driven down looking at those patients that were mutation carriers that had breast cancer that did not remove the contralateral breast and follow those patients out over time. Interesting. And they looked at, well, what is the risk of a second breast cancer? And it, the numbers are fairly surprising and, and really kind of changed my practice in the last um, six to eight months because this was data that was presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference just this last December. So, for example, those patients with a PALP-B2 mutation, their, their future risk after their first diagnosis is actually dependent on the biology of that breast cancer. So if they're estrogen-positive breast cancer and they have PALP-B2 mutation, they have about the same risk as anybody else of another breast cancer. Whereas if they have a triple-negative breast cancer, it's about three times as high. So not only is it the mutation, but it's the biology, and that can help have that discussion with the patient um, to help them understand. BRCA2, um, a lot less than BRCA1. So you know, 10-year risk of 15 to 17% for BRCA2 carrier, where it might be 25% uh, for a BRCA1 carrier. Okay. And um, an ATM, really not that much difference. So this data also can help in um, discussing with patients about, you know, whether or not, um, you know, lumpectomy would be a reasonable option, for example, for these different mutation carriers. So, um, you know, BRCA1, 
I don't think I've ever done a lumpectomy for a BRCA1. And part of that is it's most likely if they have another breast cancer, it's going to be a triple negative breast cancer and they'll need chemotherapy again. Yeah. And obviously patients never want that. For a BRCA2 carrier, I've had a few patients that have chosen lumpectomy. Okay. Um, it's not as common for sure, but it has happened. Um, and I think it's it's all about the discussion and making sure the patient understands and and you give them uh, the information needed to to come up with the best the best option. But for some of these other mutations, um, I think a lumpectomy uh, would be uh, totally appropriate as long again as long as the patient has had the uh, the discussion. Yeah, I think the point you made about the PAL B two carriers having an estrogen receptor positive cancer, well, then that actually almost like resets the framework. Yeah. They're at equivalent risk as someone without an underlying uh, underlying germline mutation. Okay, last question because um, we are getting to time. So we talk a lot about neadjuvant risk reducing therapy, um, and somebody who has an underlying pathogenic mutation is you know, who doesn't want to pursue prophylactic bilateral mastectomies at this time, is there any role for endocrine therapy or any other medical therapy that can reduce their risk of a future breast cancer? So this is um, someone who does not have a cancer. This is somebody who does not have a cancer, who has an underlying, you know, screened because of a family member who had a breast cancer, found to have an underlying BRCA or or B two situation. So just to be totally clear, so yeah. I wouldn't call it neoadjuvant. Or I'm sorry, good point. Right. Yes. So so risk reducing therapy. Um, you know, there are some studies looking at the impact of risk reducing endocrine therapy on patients with pathogenic variants. Um, there's some data. So you know, for for BRCA one mutation carriers those patients have a higher risk of getting ER-negative breast cancer. So endocrine therapy is really going to be reducing the chance of getting an ER-positive breast cancer. And so that, I think, you know, it, it's sort of hard to see a huge benefit in the setting of a BRCA1 pathogenic variant. Uh-huh. For a BR- BRCA2 pathogenic variant where you have, um, you know, a, maybe a proclivity for an ER-positive breast cancer, you might consider it, and people definitely have done it, um, I think my personal opinion on this is, you know, if, if we know that taking endocrine therapy for five years will lower the chance of getting breast cancer by 40%. Uh-huh. So say you have a BRCA2 mutation and your lifetime risk, say, is 60%. Uh-huh. If you lower that by 40%, your risk is still, what, 36%? Right. So to me, you're still above that threshold of you know, once your lifetime risk of getting breast cancer is greater than 20%, you fall into this category that we call high risk. Oh, if you're high risk, you still need to do, you know, high risk, um, utility recommended to do high risk screening with MRIs every year, in addition to mammograms and a clinical breast exam, you still might consider risk reducing mastectomies. So, um, so for me, it's hard to see the benefit of taking this kind of therapy if you still end up high risk. Right. If the outcome's still the same, you're either doing high-risk surveillance right. or you're still having... Right. You know, of course, people might have different opinions about that. That's just kind of my my thought on it. Um, same with some of the other mutations. I I think that, you know, the, the likelihood, um, the lifetime incidence of breast cancer... So for a, for a gene that has sort of lower or moderate, moderate penetrance, um, you know, maybe check to, for example, something like that, 
I think that risk-reducing endocrine therapy may very well be worthwhile. But for some of these like high penetrance uh, genes, to me, it's harder for me to see that the benefit outweighs the the downside. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it and it it's one of those things. There's not a lot of data for it, You're right? right? Um, and not not a lot of women that are BRCA2 positive are going to want to get randomized to either bilateral mastectomy or tamoxifen. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, so it's really tough. So what you have is you you have you know observational cohorts of you know. Uh, these big studies where they followed patients that were thought to be high risk based on either a biopsy or something else. They took their anti-estrogen therapy, and then they looked at, you know, risk of breast cancer. And in those gigantic populations of thousands and thousands of women in those studies, there were some small cohorts of, you know, 260 patients that were found to be BRCA2 or something. Mm -hmm. And there was a suggestion that maybe endocrine therapy did have some um, benefit but I agree with Dr. Mukhtar in the sense that, I mean, these, if the drug didn't have any side effects and the patient didn't want the surgery yet, I'm like, okay, go ahead and take the drug. Mm -hmm. The problem is with all the side effects, um, it's just like, I th I'm not sure I think that the benefit, you know, is is worth it. Right. Now, after BRCA, you know, this most recent data from the carrier study is suggesting, although this is, this is not, uh, you know, what the actual conclusion was, but as you were saying, for the PALP-B2 patient, you know, it's interesting that if they're estrogen positive, they're going to get anti-estrogen therapy for their breast cancer, which not is only not only therapeutic, you know, for that cancer, but also preventative for a future breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And those PALP-B2 that are estrogen positive have a very similar risk as the general population, unaffected, whereas the triple negative uh, PALP-B2 have a much higher risk. So there maybe is something, right? Are we Dr. Mukhtar was saying, in the in those lower uh, risk uh, mutations that maybe it might be beneficial and it could prevent women feeling that they need to do prophylactic mastectomy when they might be able to take the drug. So, But we'll just have to wait and see. In, in the carrier study, for the patients who had a PALP2 mutation, the lifetime risk of developing breast cancer was 32%. So, you know, if you cut that, um, you know, by 40%, it can't exactly do the math, but you get into like, I don't know, 15 to 18 percent um, risk, lifetime risk. A non-mutation carrier lifetime risk would be 12 percent. So you do get almost to kind of normal risk and certainly below that threshold of high risk. Yeah. So, you know, so I think, yeah, certainly there might be scenarios where you'd consider it. Okay. Well, great. Thank you both so much. Um, and again, thank you to everyone uh, behind the knife that gave us this opportunity. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.